Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. We're going to have two conversations today about racism and history. First, with the native Detroiter who manages the African American History Program at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. He is going to be delivering the keynote speech at Wayne State University's MLK Day celebration. And then we're going to talk with the authors of a Washington Post story about the formidable history of slaveholders being elected to Congress. That's all next on Detroit Today. But first, the news from NPR. Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We are coming up on the annual observance of the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday, a day that is not just important for its look back at the life and the deeds of the civil rights leader that it is named for, but for the occasion that it inspires, I think, in all of us to think about race and racism, history, and the way that all of those things kind of swirl together to produce the events and the tensions and the dynamics that we all live with today. Wayne State University, of course, will be one of many local institutions that will celebrate Dr. King's life and legacy with special programs in the coming days. And this year, the theme of Wayne State's celebration is looking back to look ahead, which the university says, quote, will reflect on Dr. King's teachings and how we live them today and into the future. It will be a virtual event taking place this Friday, January 14th at 10 a.m. And you can find out more information and RSVP for the event at go.wayne.edu slash MLK 2022. My first guest today is a native Detroiter who has gone on to do some pretty incredible things in Washington, D.C., and he will offer the keynote speech at Wayne State University's celebration. Christopher Wilson is Director of Experience Design and the African American History Program at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History, and he joins us now to talk about his work. Christopher, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you so much, Stephen. It's wonderful to be here. Yeah. So first of all, I am really happy to welcome uh, a native Detroiter back to Detroit, but also a fellow graduate of U of D Jesuit, which is the high school that I attended, and the University of Michigan, which is uh, where I went to college. Uh, You are very much of this place. That's right. Yes, we crossed paths. Uh, uh, I think you're a few years behind me yes. um, at uh, at both institutions, uh, but we were there at the same time. I think I was a senior and you were a freshman yes. at uh, at U of D and then probably the same situation at uh, at Michigan. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I would imagine that uh, it's always nice to be able to come home and talk about the work that you do in in Washington. Uh, w- one of the things that I think is most important and interesting about that work is how you teach the history of Dr. King and the civil rights movement to students. Uh, we've been having some really politically charged conversations lately as a nation about how we teach history and race in schools. And there are a lot of people who think we ought to teach less of it uh, than, than we do Right now, um, you founded the National Youth Summit, which is an award-winning series that convenes thousands of middle schoolers and high schoolers around these kinds of conversations. I, I wonder if you can talk about how you approach these topics with young people and what you make of the conversation that we're having about how we introduce the nation's history and the difficulties around that history to, to young people. Sure. Well, you know, I think I can start by saying that when I came to the Smithsonian in Washington at the American History Museum, uh, 
I worked at Henry Ford Museum for a number of years and worked on uh, programs around the civil rights movement, but also a lot of programs for young people. And I came to the Smithsonian to run our African-American history program, which had been founded by Dr. Bernice Johnson Regan, who's a scholar, an activist herself, one of the original members of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee Freedom Singers, um, and then the founder of the a cappella black women singing group Sweet Honey and the Rock. Mm. She came to the Smithsonian with an idea to, to collect and interpret the civil rights story uh, from a perspective of the foot soldiers of the movement. So she started a, an Af uh, uh, the African-American History Program, but also uh, our celebration and commemoration of the birthday of Dr. Martin Luther King. But she did the latter by talking about people other than Dr. Martin Luther King because she really wanted to show that this movement was a movement, both of the leaders like King, but also of ordinary people, thousands of ordinary people who made a decision to cross the line that uh, told them, you know, the, the line that they knew if they crossed it meant they might get killed. And they decided to put their bodies on the line, on the line to force a change in this country. And really, when I say force a change, I mean, that's really what it was. It wasn't uh, that they were sort of, you know, asking for uh, rules and laws and so forth to be, to be uh, changed, but demanding it and using the, their own bodies as tools and as weapons in a nonviolent campaign. So, uh, so she'd done that for a long time with uh, certain types of programs. I brought more of an interest in talking to young people uh, to uh, to the study and the interpretation around around the civil rights movement. And so, uh, one of the things, yes, I did was was to uh, to in two thousand and ten and eleven uh, found our national youth summit there, which really came out of their civil rights work. But it was an idea to get as many young people on one particular day around the country and around the world talking about history that was still relevant today. So uh, several of them have been civil rights topics like Freedom Summer and the Freedom Rides, mm -hmm. um, but we've also done things like the Dust Bowl and, uh, uh, and uh, you know, environmental issues and, and, and uh, modern-day slavery and human trafficking and so forth, uh, and the team that is now sort of taking over the, the uh, U.S. Summit have uh, recently done a really wonderful one on gender equity this past year. And so what do you make of this dialogue around teaching the history of race and racism in America to kids and the political rhetoric that it is kind of soaked in right now? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think it's it's interesting and, and saddening that uh, I think two years ago we were as a nation at a place where we seemed really – interested and willing and ready to have a deeper conversation about systemic racism. And now, you know, we're seeing laws passed to say we shouldn't discuss, mm -hmm. you know, that it'd make it illegal to discuss systemic racism. Um, for me, working at museums and working in the public history space, uh, it this is this has always been somewhat of an issue. And I think the the, the civil rights movement has been a topic that uh, that we co we cover and we think about in a couple different ways. I'm really fascinated uh, by and work to study and help people understand that history and memory or myth or nostalgia are different things. Mm -hmm. That history, that there is uh, the, the 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 search for what the truth about what happened in the past that uh, historians do based on evidence. And that's what history is. Memory is something different. It's usually what we, what we take from it. It's a simpler story, a less complicated story, a story that usually has morals and values associated with it that history maybe doesn't. And we usually try to simplify, even in museums, simplify a story uh, down to those sort of memory and nostalgic issues. And civil rights movement is a perfect example of that because with Dr. King, for instance, we remember 
a few words <laughs> from usually just one speech, one speech yeah. um, and not even the whole I have a dream speech. And, you know, we remember his theme of a colorblind society and remember things like love and and so forth, which, of course, he was about. We create this day as a day of service because who could be against a day of service? You and I both went to school with Jesuits and know the, the theme of men for others. And I'm sure you had a lot of service projects and I did and believe that that's really important. But that's not what Dr. King's message was really about. Um, when something like the Rosa Parks bus, which I worked on when he was at Henry Ford Museum or the uh, the Greensboro lunch counter, which is one of the iconic objects at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History, come into a museum, it gains with it sort of a respectability and a lack of radicalness that uh, where people think, well, of course, if I were there, I would have supported this. Mm -hmm. Of course, I would have been a part of the movement. And of course, it's it's mean and wrong to separate people. Um, but you can just easily look at polls of the you know 1960s and see that most people were against the uh, the, the the tactics of the movement and the leaders of the movement and and it, then and it was really radical. So what we're trying to do, what I try to do, is really try to get some of that more complicated history into the story, uh, so that people can better understand it and uh, and and hopefully understand our current day better. Yeah. So so that's a really fine line to try to walk, I guess, uh, between the things that you were just talking about, the difference between history and memory, the difference between memory and myth. Uh, and it's an interesting, I guess, construct in which to think of the work of museums, which, which as you point out, kind of have to deal with with all of those, and then present a story that that you know is factual, is true. Um, uh, talk about how at the Smithsonian, I guess, uh, y you balance all of those things. Um, can you give us some examples of the ways in which you have to kind of contend with all of those things to present something that people can draw the right value away from? Sure. Uh, well, I think, first of all, um, when uh, oftentimes when folks come to museums, when visitors come to museums there and and the way we think of history, uh, we we really want to use it um, as something where there are these definite lessons and where those lessons can make us feel comfortable. You know, we want to. Uh, but you know, generally, though, history, I think, and you should be very skeptical about any history that does make you feel comfortable, because um, because you know those those answers uh, are much less clear the the more you look at it and the more you uh, accept the complexity that is there. Um, but because you know that is where visitors are often coming, you know we have to somewhat meet them where where they are um, and. Hopefully, allow uh, allow learning to take place, uh, you know, on their own terms, uh, because we do work in an informal learning space, a, a, a space where people um, are, you know, no one's forced to go to a museum, sure. uh, except maybe on maybe some school that's field cool. trips and well, so forth. Right. Uh, but uh, uh, so so uh, so I've d used things. Uh, Tactics like uh, museum theater. We have um, one of our really popular um, and long-running um, experiences is called Join the Student Sit-ins. Mm -hmm. And I mentioned we have the Greensboro lunch counter at the museum. Um, and in 2008, we started doing a show in front of it called Join the Student Sit-ins, where we take people through a training session on what it would, uh, how people would be trained to participate in sit-ins. And we base this on the interviews with uh, with people who'd been through it, Congressman John Lewis, Diane Nash, the actual Greensboro Four, um, and and others. Uh, and um, and the idea really was to not not show the first day of, of the sit-in in February 1st, 1960, but show what that looked like a month or two months or so forth down the road and uh, allow visitors to take part in this training session and 
uh, think about whether they would have the courage, the fortitude, the commitment to uh, be nonviolent, but also put their bodies on the line to to force a change and demand a new nation, which mm-hmm. is really what the folks were doing then. And so we've been running that for now more than 10 years, and more than a million people have gone through that program. Uh, and uh, and what I think, one of the things I think it, it helps people do that you can't get out of a... Uh, out of other sources of, of educational, uh, of learning for history, um, is that it allows really emotional learning. Um, people come away with, with an experience that they've, uh, that they've partaken, Mm -hmm. uh, in with, with other people that they don't know, which I think is one of the great things about the Smithsonian. Our, our secretary, uh, Lonnie Bunch, who formerly the founder of the, Smithsonian African-American History and Culture uh, Museum um, and now became our first historian secretary of the Smithsonian, I think in some ways is is sort of the nation's historian. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, as he says, you know, the Smithsonian has this, oper- has this ability to kind of break down bubbles. So what we try to do is to really try to get people who don't know each other to talk to each other. And so a lot of our theater programs like Joining the Student Sit-Ins try to do that. And um, because we have this platform, we have this forum where where we hopefully can bring people together. Um, and we think that that sort of conversation among among Americans and, and people from around the world about history in a safe space like the Smithsonian can create a better future. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Christopher Wilson, Director of Experience Design and the African American History Program at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. We want to hear from you during this conversation as well. We're coming up on the MLK Day holiday. How are you reflecting this year on Dr. King's life and his work as we get closer to MLK Day? What about his teachings or his writings is most illuminating to you right now about the world we live in. What do you think he would say about America in 2022? And what do you make of the conversation that we're having nationally about the history of race and racism uh, in America, how we teach it to children, how we contend with it today, how we confront the inequalities that it still foists upon us uh, all the time? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. What do you think when you think about the history of race and racism in this country? Does it make you uncomfortable to talk about the things that have happened that have an influence over the things that we face today? Is it hard to find a way to talk about these things with somebody of a different race? to get at the kind of truths about emotion and experience that help bring about understanding. As we get closer to this year's celebration of Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, holiday, the, the birth of one of our most important civil rights leaders, we're talking about how we think about race and racism in history, how we think through the things that have happened in our country and where they leave us today. Our guest right now is Christopher Wilson, Director of Experience Design and the African American History Program at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. He is going to deliver the keynote address at Wayne State University's 2022 Dr. Martin Luther King Day celebration. We want to hear from you as well as we get closer to MLK Day. What are you thinking about Dr. King's life and work here in 2022? 
What about his teachings or his writings has influence over the way you think about race and racism today? And what do you think he would say about America in 2022? Also, how much do you really know about Martin Luther King Jr., the things he said, the things he did? How much were you taught as a young person about Martin Luther King Jr.? Do you feel like you were told enough about who he was, who he really was, what he really believed, what he was willing to do and to sacrifice? Or were you given kind of a surface version of the work that he did? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and we'll work you into the conversation. Also, give us a call and let us know what you think about the current conversation in Washington about the Voting Rights Act. President Joe Biden, Vice President Kamala Harris, really starting to take aim at the idea of invigorating, reinvigorating voting rights legislation uh, in this country, putting some real pressure on members of their own party and on Republicans. Uh, to think about the fairness that still eludes so much of the voting process here in America. Uh, Is that uh, an appropriate, I guess, uh, cast forward of the things that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was talking about uh, in the 1960s and and working for? Uh, Can you imagine that 50 years later we are still having Uh, The same conversations about that. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter, put comments there, and we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, Christopher, before we get to listeners, uh, I want to give you a chance to talk about uh, what you will talk about uh, when you uh, take part in Wayne State's virtual MLK Day event uh, this Friday. Well, I think uh, really the last point you made about King, um, you really previewed it pretty well, because uh, one of the things I'm going to talk about is that this idea of how much we really know King and Mm -hmm. what we really celebrate. And I think that one of the things that, uh, as I mentioned, about how we view and present history in museums, but also with things like statues and street names and, uh, you know, and holidays even, uh, where we we make the history, we turn it into memory. Mm -hmm. We create create nostalgia and we create simple, comfortable stories. We've definitely created a comfortable, ahistorical Dr. King. And it's one that everybody feels like they uh, they feel favor- favorably about and and um, and they admire and, and like. Uh, a couple of years ago, there was a poll just before the pandemic started, um, and more than 90% of U.S. adults said they viewed Dr. King favorably. And many other people of the movement, uh, particularly like a Rosa Parks, was about 88%. Um, and even Muhammad Ali, who was denigrated through the 60s um, uh, was viewed as almost 80% positive. So, But that's partly because we changed their history and we remember a few comfortable things about it. Um, I think if people knew King better, um, that uh, that those numbers, unfortunately, would go down, but I think it would be we'd be in a better and a more honest uh, space. Uh, when you look at the history of the movement, um, and particularly the iconic uh, protests like the Montgomery bus boycott, like the sit-in movement and the freedom rides and so forth, um, what we remember about that is, well, they were trying to get rid of segregation. And of course, segregation is bad. Of course, separating people with these obvious, um, obviously unconstitutional, obviously unfair rules and laws are bad, and we should have gotten rid of that. But what they were really fighting for, really from the beginning, was that segregation was the most obvious uh, uh point of a systemic racism sword that was keeping African-Americans in a servile condition. And Muhammad uh, 
of course, Muhammad Ali, but um, Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks were very open about that from the start. Um, it was really about um, remaking a, a, a society and um, destroying they wouldn't have used the term systemic racism, but that's what they were talking about. They were talking about systems of of oppression. And uh, so in some place like Montgomery, it wasn't just that uh, that you that the buses were segregated and other facilities were segregated, but also people couldn't get jobs downtown. People couldn't uh, people were in were forced into certain certain uh places of, of, of employment and types of employment. Um, housing was was not just segregated, but um, inferior. Schooling was inferior. And so it was this system that, um, that segregation was the point of uh, that they were trying to destroy and destroy it. Uh, I, I think the other thing that is really amazing about that movement is that every movement leader and activist that I've ever interviewed from Rosa Parks um, to Diane Nash, to Congressman Lewis, to the Greensboro Four, all of them came to this from a emotion of anger, mm -hmm. of being frustrated, being angry, angry, and not just angry, angry to the point of, of um, despondentness. Uh, the, uh, the Greensboro Four, um, Frank McCain, Joe McNeil, uh, Ezel Blair and David Richmond, um, you know, said they felt suicidal as teenagers um, because they'd seen some progress. They'd seen the Brown versus Board of Education case uh, uh, declared and 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 segregation in public schools ending um, or being you know ordered to end. It didn't actually end, but being ordered to end in 1954 when they were about 12 years old, and. Uh, and Frank McCain told me that his father said then, well, everything is going to change now. And when we think of it in a history book, we think, okay, well, 1954 to, uh, to you know, 1964, a lot changed and a lot of these rules changed and, and, and so forth. But when you're 12 years old and you head off to college maybe in a few years and you don't see any changes at all, um, and those years felt like a long time. And so this was, uh, this was, this came out of this, uh, this, this feeling of, of anger, of, um, of, uh, of resentment, mm -hmm. um, and, and so forth. But I think the amazing thing was so many of them turned to nonviolent direct action as a tactic and turned that anger into, uh, a positive direction, um, but I think one of the things that we think of when we think of the, the nonviolence, then we think of it as, and when we often even use the term passive resistance, mm -hmm. but it wasn't passive at all. It was active. People like Diane Nash after the, after the bombing of the church in Birmingham, the, ter the terrible terrorist attack that killed four little girls um, at Sunday school, right after Martin Luther King had delivered his I Have a Dream speech in Washington, right after we think of, when we think of it now, we think of this moment when everyone was coming together. Well, the backlash to that was blowing up four little girls. Diane Nash felt like... Um, that was the last straw. And she and her then husband, James Bevel, were entreated King to start a massive movement that would, you know, put things like what we've seen during Black Lives Matter and so forth to shame because they intended to have a giant movement that would shut down Alabama and even the whole country um, nonviolently, but still very, very aggressively and radically because it because they just felt like, you know, human beings could not allow this sort of violence and terrorism to stand. Right, right. Uh, we have a social media question from uh, Dr. Liette Gidlow, who uh, teaches here at Wayne State University. Uh, she says, what's the role of the Smithsonian, Smithsonian American History Museum in our current historical moment when Americans are deeply divided over what is true and real and democracy seems imperiled? We were talking a little about that earlier, but I think that's a more direct question about I guess what the museum sees really as its role as Americans have this pretty spirited argument over what what inclusion means, what democracy means, what fairness looks like. Uh, talk just a little about how you guys think think that through there. 
Yeah, well, I I think um, I would I would encourage anyone to come to our website, uh, come to our programs that are online, come eventually. I, we are open uh, five days a week right now in Washington, D.C., um, but when you feel like you can safety, safely travel and, and visit us uh, to do so, um, our uh, director, Dr. Anthea Hartig, um, has come in. Um, uh, I, I really I say new director because uh, she started just before the pandemic and it seems like time has stopped in some ways, but it certainly, but it certainly hasn't in, in a lot of senses because um, she's uh, decided that and made a, made a, made a decision that this museum, the National Museum of American History will be the most accessible, inclusive, relevant, sustainable uh, public history institution uh, in the nation or that we can um, in the next years. And one of the things that we've done is a tangible, um, as something really tangible to to speak to that is uh, create a new Center for Restorative History. Um, and you can check that out again if you go to our website and learn about the Center for Restorative History, which has just uh, just begun under the direction of uh, Dr. Uh, Sion Wold Michael. Um, and uh, and that idea is that you know we, history has has power and history has, uh, ability to to harm people, and we want to reduce the harm that has been done by history that has been uh, that has been forgotten or not told um, and erased as much as uh, as that that has that has been told. We also have uh, created, and I was involved in in this along with our chief curator uh, Benjamin Filin, um and a team of uh, of my colleagues. We wrote a new interpretive plan for the museum to uh, really speak to much a much more of an interest in active learning and mm-hmm. and really telling those um, really more inclusive stories uh, that uh, you know that that maybe museums of the past have not not done um, and then I think thirdly uh, my goal for for the last uh, for all the years I've really been there is to dedicate um, ourselves to becoming that kind of forum um, that uh, that I mentioned earlier, being a place where uh, where people can come together um, and uh, share uh, their thoughts again with people they don't know. I think that one thing that is really special and powerful about the Smithsonian is that convening power that we have. Uh, when before I took the job, uh, again, my my mentor and and the director of the uh, the founding director of the African American History Program at at uh, the American History Museum at the Smithsonian, Bernice Regan. One of the things she told me was never forget and never take for granted the the convening power that we have. Um, it's and and at first I didn't quite know exactly what she meant. I mean, one of the things that's, that's definitely true is when you work at the Smithsonian um, and you call up just about anybody on the phone and say, I'm calling from the Smithsonian, they don't hang up on you. And so there's that sort of convening power that we can pull together, you know, speakers and historians and, you know, celebrities and artists and so forth in these, in, and scientists, you know, most of the Smithsonian is actually science, um, into these, uh, into panels and discussions and, and so forth. And so we can do that, but also, just the fact that the way that visitors themselves come to the museum, they come with a with an openness um, where they will uh, engage in conversation with one another. And so I've always said that what, you know, more even than, um, than teaching about history, what I really say that I try to do is use history to get people who didn't know each other yesterday to talk to each other and to, to meet in this historical space. Mm-hmm. Um, but really what they, what we hope that, what I hope that they learn is respect and understand better understanding for, uh, for their fellow humans, you know, who also um, visit the museum and, and hopefully we can create more of an honest dialogue in, in that way. So again, I, 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 uh, I recommend anyone um, take a take a look at our website and take a look at some of the new work that we're we've done and that we will be rolling out, especially as as things get back to normal. Yeah, yeah. 
Okay, Christopher Wilson, Director of Experience Design in the African American History Program at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. It was really great to have you here to have this conversation, and we look really much forward to your speech on Friday as part of Wayne State University's MLK Day celebration. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Stephen, and and you know, go go Cubs, go Blue, and and go war go Warriors of Wednesday. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Okay, we're gonna take another quick break, and when we come back, we're gonna change the subject slightly. We're gonna hear about the Washington Post's new investigation, which reveals that seventeen hundred members of Congress once enslaved black people. We're gonna talk about who they were and how they shaped American history and our nation as we know it today. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. WDET is your place for open dialogue. The music you love. Real news and in-depth analysis. And cultural experiences. The sound of Detroit. 1019 WDET is your public radio station. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Slavery plays such an integral role in the American story. And while, of course, it does not exist today in this country, its history has shaped all of our institutions, our government structures, and our culture, our religion, our music, just about everything that we know about being American. This point has been made before, but it was recently demonstrated more publicly and thoroughly with the New York Times 1619 Project, which has sometimes been declared controversial, not for misinterpreting facts, but for the very notion that slavery played a critical role in crafting American stories and traditions. On Monday, a new article by the Washington Post uncovered a new disturbing fact that further elucidates this idea, the idea that more than 1,700 congressmen in American history once enslaved black people. Now, it's not news that there were members of Congress who owned slaves, who owned human beings. We've known about that forever, really. And uh, if you think about the history of Southeast Michigan, we can think of some very prominent names who fall into that category. But the number here, 1,700 Congress people, is significant. And it means something. It means a lot of things as we try to sort of sort through what the history of this country means to us today. Joining us now to talk more about this reporting is Julie Z. Wild. She's a reporter with The Washington Post and one of the people who contributed to this new investigation titled More Than 1,700 Congressmen Once Enslaved Black People. This is who they were and how they shaped the nation. Julie Weil, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. So you start the article by writing, from the founding of the United States until long after the Civil War, hundreds of elected leaders writing the nation's laws were current or former slave owners. How did you guys find this out? How did you come to this uh, this conclusion? Well, I started with a list of every member of Congress who was born before 1840, meaning they were adults before the Civil War. Uh-huh and basically went through the list one at a time looking to see was this man a slave owner or not. And eventually, after months of research, came to a list of more than 1,700 who were. And the research is still ongoing. I'm getting emails every few minutes from readers who are sending me more documents about more congressmen. Hmm. And talk about just the process of trying to confirm this kind of thing. It's very popular right now for people to look back into their own histories and, and discover things about their families. How difficult is it 
to decide whether someone in history was a, a slaveholder. Some of those judgment calls are harder than others. And I think if you look at some of the really prominent examples recently, like Alexander Hamilton or mm-hmm. Johns Hopkins, there have been some intense debates about what the handwritten records of the 18th or 19th century should mean to us now when we read them. Uh, so some are hard and some are easy. Uh, most of my research was in the census, looking at the 1790 through 1860 censuses. Uh, but there are all sorts of documents. And and many people, uh, of course, know that many of the f- founders were slaveholders, uh, but not everyone knows that uh, members of Congress, I guess, uh, were slaveholders or former slaveholders, and that uh, they weren't just from the American South. Now, here in Southeast Michigan, uh, we have been having a conversation for a long time about uh, a slaveholding here in in Detroit and, and some very prominent members of uh, Detroit history who who were slaveholders. One I think that immediately comes to mind for everybody here is Lewis Cass, who uh, was a member of the U.S. Senate, but but was a slaveholder here in 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 Detroit. Uh, the, the the most prominent public school, public high school, in in Detroit is named for him still, uh, uh, as is one of our our major streets. Um, but but talk about the the extent of this. I mean, I think that's one of the things that that really jumps out is that. For so many people, when you say the word American, the words American slavery, they think of the South, and they should because that's where it was concentrated. But this was not exclusive to the South. And in terms of people who went off to Washington to represent uh, Americans, it definitely was not. Uh, it was definitely not exclusive to the South. It really wasn't. Somebody I was reading about this morning was George Wallace Jones, who represented Michigan. He actually represented three different states because he was a territorial delegate from Michigan. When his part of Michigan got turned into Wisconsin, he represented (laughs) Wisconsin. Then he moved to Iowa and became a senator from Iowa. But these are all northern states. He was a slaveholder. He was actually a college friend of Jefferson Davis, continued to support his old buddy Jefferson Davis during the Civil War. He Mm -hmm. was arrested. Um, You know, he represented Michigan. Uh, somebody I'm still looking for information about, if any of your listeners know any more about him, is Gabriel Richard from Michigan, another mm-hmm. one of those early territorial delegates um, who I, I don't have much information about because it was early. If yeah. anybody does, please get in touch. Uh, there are lots of folks here who know about Gabriel Richard, who is another really prominent name in in our history, uh, is the person who is credited with coming up with um, with the the slogan for the city of Detroit after after a fire leveled uh, leveled the city? He came up with this idea of of resurgence and rebuilding. Um, I mean, he's a very prominent name, and and I think a lot of people know about his involvement with uh, with slavery, for instance. Well, you clearly know much more than I do, so please uh, <laughs> get in touch about that one. I would like to. There, there, we have a. We actually have a city historian now uh, here in Detroit. His name is Jamon Jordan, and he is an absolutely wonderful resource for this subject specifically, the history of slavery here in Detroit. And uh, he's also a listener. So if he is listening, uh, I would tell him to, to, to reach out to you. Uh, but but we can connect well, you with so him. Yeah, great. I, I think that one of my hopes for the database is that it will be useful to people who are doing what Detroit and a lot of cities are doing, which is reexamining that history and looking at maybe our public monuments, our mm-hmm. public schools, who are they named after? Mm-hmm. You know, if you want to look up, hey, this my elementary school is named for this congressman I don't know much about, you can type him into the database now, and I hope that'll be helpful. Yeah, yeah. So I, I want to go back to something you said at the beginning of our conversation about uh, this being true after 1865, which is the end of the Civil War. I think some people might look at this and say, wait a minute, slavery was abolished after the Civil War. How is it that there were former slaveholders that held office 
even into the 20th century? I want to put that question to you. Right. So what's key is the way you said they're former slaveholders. Mm-hmm. These are people who were slaveholders, Civil War ended, and then they were elected to Congress. Yeah. Um, if you look at Georgia, for example, there was a period of time after Georgia seceded and then became part of the United States again, and they then sent a congressional delegation entirely made up of former slaveholders, wow. every single one of them. Wow. Um, and, and that was true of a lot of states, though I think Georgia's the only one sending only slaveholders. <laughs> um, but it continues all the way into the 20th century. There's a Confederate soldier representing Alabama from 1900 to 1914. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I also want to talk just uh, a, a little about um, what you think people should should draw from this. These are kind of messy conversations, and they they tend to be presented in very stark terms, I think, uh, when we talk about them. But for instance, uh, in, in the reporting, you guys point out that uh, there were people who were anti-slavery who also once held slaves. I mean, there's this continuum, I think, of involvement with American slavery that um, that ensnares a lot of different kinds of people and people who you might not necessarily just say, well, of course that person was a slaveholder because they lived in the South and they owned a plantation and they did this and they did that. Um, uh, talk just a little about the the difficulty of of sorting through who 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 these people are and what they mean. I guess that what they mean now. Yeah, I mean, in no way is this a yes or no question where you can just say, okay, this person's a slaveholder, this person's not, I know everything I need to know. That's not how this works. These people have very complicated stories, like some of the people you were alluding to, people who uh, had a lot of anti-slavery activities in their political careers, even as they were keeping people in slavery at their own homes. That sort of story, I think that just knowing, hey, we have a list of who's a slaveholder and who's not, is helpful to telling those stories when you want to talk about somebody like John Floyd, for example, who floated the idea of getting rid of slavery in Virginia when Mm -hmm. he was the governor of Virginia. Mm -hmm. Uh, That story gets told a lot more often than the fact that Floyd was a slave owner. I'm trying to add some context to those stories, but it's not the whole story. Yeah. Uh, and as you point out, this is not just a story. This is a database that that uh, readers of the Post uh, can can interact with and and find uh, information. I imagine that that database will grow and change <laughs> quite a bit over time. It will. It's really already just in the past couple of days. People have sent me so much valuable information to help grow the database, and we've made the actual data itself public and downloadable so that historians, maybe somebody's doing an analysis of a bill or a vote in Congress, they can use this as a layer of their analysis if they want. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I want to get take a a quick phone call here from uh, Rich in Huntington Woods. Rich, welcome to the show. Hi. Hello, Stephen. Hey, Rich. Uh, Thank you so much. This is such an important conversation of, as everybody who cares, has begun to understand. Mm -hmm. I wanted to introduce the conversation to a little history of Royal Oak Charter Township. Mm -hmm. And it's the 100th anniversary of the Grant School. And South Oakland County had its own history, not not the slavery that you're discussing, but the 21st, 20th century Jim Crow activities that destroyed the black community here, marginalized it, yet kept the people in the community, kept the spirit alive to create nine white suburbs, yep. of which I live in one of them. <laughs> um, and uh, we're now engaged in, in fact, we Saturday, we're having a photo op at the Grand School to publicly begin the conversation. We've been doing research on the doc, creating a documentary. So I hope at some point you invite folks from Friends of Royal Oak Charter Township Absolutely. for the conversation. Yeah, no, I'm glad you called and, and raised that issue, Rich. I mean, it's, it, it, it's another of the, you know, 
really important tentacles of of this history that that of course slavery ends in 1865 but so many other institutions grow up around the idea of of inequality and they grow up not just in the the former slaveholding states but but all over all over the nation and we have lots of complicated history here in in Michigan um, that we still uh, as you point out, need to to spend some time, I think, unpacking and 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 thinking about. Um, we've only got about a minute and a half left, uh, Julie. But I want to ask you about uh, your interview with Senator Cory Booker for this piece. Uh, can you tell us just a little about what he said? How his everyday realities as a senator are still affected by sa- by slavery's legacy? Yes, he talked about walking through the halls of Congress and noticing that these slaveholders' statues are standing around him. I think he pointed some of them out to a post photographer recently, actually. Um, And he also connected this topic with a bill that he's been promoting. He's trying to pass a bill to create a study of the feasibility of and and, uh, practicality and uh, uh, soundness of reparations as an idea. That's an idea that he has been promoting. And he said that, look, this shows how much of our history we really haven't grappled with yet. And we need to really do some serious inquiry. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Julie Weil, reporter with the Washington Post. Really great to have you here to talk about this really great work. And if you're interested in checking out the story or this uh, database that they've put together, uh, you'll find that at WashingtonPost.com. Julie, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much. Okay, that's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when Senator Debbie Stabenow is going to join the program to talk about the push to pass federal voting rights protections. And we'll hear the odd, hilarious, and illuminating story about a plan to create a libertarian utopia that was foiled by bears. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.